evil propensities like a captive audience. But my evil propensities are dampened by the fact that I've talked here once before. And so I have to think of something to say that I haven't said already. It's not that I think none of you ever get that blessing, or that I think you have the memory of elephants. It's just that I dislike boring myself. I think that if there is any value in hearing one another's talks, it will be in hearing what they can witness to and not what they can theorize about. My own approach to literary problems is very much like the one Dr. Johnson's blind housekeeper used when she poured tea. She put her finger inside the cup. These are not times when writers in this country can very well speak for one another. In the 20s, there were those at Vanderbilt University who felt enough kinship with each other's ideas to issue a pamphlet called I'll Take My Stand. And in the 30s, there were writers whose social consciousness set them all going in more or less the same direction. But today, there are no good writers bound even loosely together who would be so bold as to say that they speak for a generation or for each other. Today, each writer speaks for himself, even though he may not be sure that his work is important enough to justify his doing so. I think that every writer when he speaks of his own approach to fiction, tries to prove that in some crucial and deep sense, he is a realist. And for some of us, for whom the ordinary aspects of daily life prove to be of no great fictional interest, this is very difficult. I have found that if one's young hero can't be identified with the average American boy, or even with the average American delinquent, then his perpetrator will have a good deal of explaining to do. The first necessity confronting him will be to say what he is not doing. For even if there are no genuine schools in American letters today, there is always some critic who has just invented one and who is ready to put you into it. If you are a southern writer, that label and all the misconceptions that go with it is pasted on you at once, and you are left to get it off as best you can. I have found that no matter for what purpose, peculiar to your own special dramatic ends, you use the southern scene, you are still thought by the general reader to be writing about the South, and are judged by the fidelity your fiction has to typical Southern life. I'm always having it pointed out to me that life in Georgia is not at all the way I picture it, that escaped criminals do not roam the roads exterminating families, and the Bible salesmen prowl about looking for girls with wooden legs. The social sciences have cast a dreary blight on the public approach to fiction. When I first began to write, my own particular bete noire was that mythical entity, the school of southern degeneracy. Every time I 
felt like Blair Rabbit stuck on the tar baby. There was a time when the average reader read a novel simply for the mob he could get out of it. And however naive that may have been, it was a good deal less naive than some of the more limited objectives he now has. Today, novels are considered to be entirely concerned with the social or economic or psychological forces that they will by necessity exhibit, or with those details of daily life that are for the good novelist only means to some deeper end. Holbein knew his own problem and perhaps anticipated ours when he said he did not like novels, he wrote romances. Today, many readers and critics have set up for the novel a kind of orthodoxy. They demand a realism of fact, which may in the end limit rather than broaden the novel's scope. They associate the only legitimate material for long fiction with the movement of social forces, with the typical, with fidelity to the way things look and happen in normal life. Along with this usually goes a great interest in and a thorough treatment of the physical aspects of a character's existence. It has been only within the last five or six decades that writers have won the right to treat these last subjects exhaustively. This was a right that opened up a few possibilities for fiction, but it is always a bad day for culture when any liberty of this kind is assumed to be general. The writer has no rights at all except those he forges for himself inside his own work. We have become so flooded with science fiction based on unearned liberties, on the notion that fiction must represent the typical, that in the public mind the deeper kinds of realism are less and less understandable. The writer who writes within what might be called the modern romance tradition may not be writing novels which in all respects partake of a novelistic orthodoxy, but as long as these works have vitality, as long as they present something that is alive, however eccentric its life may seem to the general reader, then they have to be dealt with, and they have to be dealt with on their own terms. When we look at a good deal of serious modern fiction, and particularly southern fiction, we find this quality about it that is generally described in a pejorative sense as grotesque. Of course, I have found that any fiction that comes out of the South is going to be called grotesque by the novel reader, unless it is grotesque, in which case it's going to be called realistic. But for this occasion, we may leave such misapplications aside and consider the kind of fiction that may be called grotesque with good reason, because of a, a directed intention on the part of the author. In these grotesque works, we find that the writer has made alive some experience which we are not accustomed to observe every day, or which the ordinary man may never experience in his ordinary life. We 
find that connections which we would expect in the customary kind of realism have been ignored, that there are strange skips and gaps which anyone trying to describe manners and customs would certainly not have left. Yet the characters in these novels are alive in spite of these things. They have an inner coherence, if not always a coherence to their social framework. Their fictional qualities lean away from typical social patterns toward mystery and the unexpected. It is this kind of realism that I want to talk about this afternoon. All novelists are fundamentally seekers and describers of the real. But the realism of each novelist will depend on his view of the ultimate reaches of reality. Since the 18th century, the popular spirit of each succeeding age has tended more and more to the view that the ills and mysteries of life will eventually fall before the scientific advances of man. If the novelist is in tune with this spirit, if he believes that actions are predetermined by psychic makeup or the economic situation or some other determinable factor, then he will be concerned above all with an accurate reproduction of the things that most immediately concern man, with the natural forces that he feels control his destiny. Such a writer may produce a great tragic naturalism, for by his responsibility to the things he sees, he may transcend his own limitations. On the other hand, if the writer believes that our life is and will remain essentially mysterious, if he looks upon us as beings existing in a created order to whose lives we freely respond, then what he sees on the surface will be of interest to him only as he can go through it into an experience of mystery itself. His kind of fiction will always be pushing its own limits outward toward the limits of mystery, because for this kind of writer, the meaning of the story does not begin except at a depth where the adequate motivation and the adequate psychology and the various determinations have been exhausted. Such a writer will be interested in what we don't understand rather than in what we do. He will be interested in possibility rather than probability. He will be interested in characters who are forced out to meet evil and grace and who act on a trust beyond themselves, whether they know very clearly what it is they act upon or not. To the modern mind, this kind of character and his creator, a typical Don Quixote, tilting at what is not there. I would not like to suggest that this kind of writer, because his interest is predominantly in mystery, is able in any sense to slight the concrete. Fiction begins where human knowledge begins, with the senses, and every fiction writer is bound by this fundamental aspect of his medium. I do believe, however, that the kind of writer I am describing will use the concrete in a more drastic way. His way will much more obviously 
be the way of distortion. Henry James said that in his fiction, he did things in the way that took the most doing. I think the writer of grotesque fiction probably does them in the way that takes the least, because in his work, distances are so great. He's looking for one image that will connect or combine or embody two points. One is a point in the concrete, and the other is a point not visible to the naked eye, but believed in by him firmly, just as real to him really as the one that everybody sees. It's not necessary to point out that the look of this fiction is going to be wild, that it is almost of necessity going to be violent and comic because of the discrepancies that it seeks to combine. Even though the writer who produces grotesque fiction may not consider his characters any more freakish than ordinary fallen man usually is, his audience is going to, and it is going to ask him, or more often tell him, why he has chosen to bring such main souls alive. Thomas Mann has said that the grotesque is the true anti-bourgeois style. But I believe that in this country, the general reader has managed to connect the grotesque somehow with the sentimental. For whenever he speaks of it favorably, he seems to associate it with the writer's compassion. It's considered an absolute necessity these days for writers to have compassion. Compassion is a word that sounds good in anybody's mouth and which no book jacket can do without. It is a quality which no one can put his finger on in any exact critical sense, so it is always safe for anybody to use. Usually, I think what is meant by it is that the writer excuses all human weakness because human weakness is human. The kind of hazy compassion demanded of the writer now makes it difficult for him to be anti-anything. Certainly, when the grotesque is used in a legitimate way, the intellectual and moral judgments implicit in it will have the ascendancy over feeling. In 19th century American writing, there was a good deal of grotesque literature which came from the frontier and was supposed to be funny. But our present grotesque characters, comic though they are, are at least not primarily comic. They seem to carry an invisible burden. Their fanaticism is a reproach, not merely an eccentricity. I believe that they come about from the prophetic vision peculiar to any novelist, but particularly, and in these times, deliberately peculiar to the novelist whose concerns I have been describing. In the novelist case, prophecy is a matter of seeing near things with their extensions of meaning, and thus of seeing far things close up. The prophet is a realist of distances, and it is this kind of realism that you find in the best modern instances of the grotesque. Whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly 
have a penchant for writing about freaks. I assume it is because we are still able to recognize one. <laughs> to be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still, in the main, theological. That is a large statement, and it is dangerous to make. Almost anything you say about Southern belief can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety. But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The Southerner who isn't convinced of it is very much afraid that he may be formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature. In any case, it is when the freak can be sensed as a figure for our essential displacement that he attains some depth in literature. There is another reason in the Southern situation that makes for a tendency toward the grotesque, and this is the prevalence of good Southern writers. I think the writer is initially set going by literature <coughs> more than by life. When there are many writers all employing the same idiom, all looking out on more or less the same social scene, the individual writer will have to be more than ever careful that he isn't just doing badly what has already been done to completion. The presence alone of Faulkner in our midst makes a great difference in what the writer can and cannot permit himself to do. Nobody wants his mule and wagon stalled on the same track the Dixie Limited is roaring down. The Southern writer is forced from all sides to make his gaze extend beyond the surface, beyond mere problems, until it touches that realm which is the concern of prophets and poets. When Hawthorne said that he wrote romances, he was attempting, in effect, to keep for fiction some of its freedom from social determinisms and to steer it in the direction of poetry. I think this tradition of the dark and divisive romance novel is combined with the comic grotesque tradition and with the lessons all writers have learned from the naturalists. To preserve our southern literature, for at least a little while, from becoming the kind of thing Mr. Van White Brooks desired when he said he hoped that our next literary phase would restore that central literature which combines the great subject matter of the middle Middlebrow writers with the technical expertness of the new critics and would thereby restore literature as a mirror and guide for society. For the kind of writer I have been talking about, a literature which mirrors society would be no fit guide for it, and one which did manage by sheer art to do both these things would have to have recourse to more violent means than middle-brow subject matter or mere technical expertness. 
We are not living in times when the realist of distances is understood or well thought of, even though he may be in the dominant tradition of American literature. Whenever the public is heard from, it is heard demanding a literature which is balanced and which will somehow heal the ravages of our time. In the name of social order, liberal thought, and sometimes even Christianity, the novelist is asked to be the handmaid of his times. I have come to think of this handmaid as being very like the Negro Porter who set Henry James' dressing case down in a puddle when James was leaving the hotel in Charleston. James was then obliged to sit in a crowded carriage with the satchel on his knees. All through the South, the poor man was ignobly served, and he afterwards wrote that our domestic servants were the last people in the world who should be employed in the way they were, for they were by nature unfitted for it. The case is the same with the novelist. When he is given the function of domestic, he's going to set the public's luggage down in puddle after puddle. The novelist must be characterized not by his function, but by his vision. And we must remember that his vision has to be transmitted and that the limitations and blind spots of his audience will very definitely affect the way he is able to show what he sees. This is another thing which in these times increases the tendency toward the grotesque in fiction. Those writers who speak for and with their age are able to do so with a great deal more ease and grace than those who speak counter to prevailing attitudes. I once received a letter from an old lady in California who informed me that when the tired reader comes home at night, he wishes to read something that will lift up his heart. And it seems her heart had not been lifted up by anything of mine she had read. I wrote her back that if her heart had been in the right place, it would have been lifted up. You might say that the serious writer doesn't have to bother about the tired reader but he does, because they are all tired. One young lady who wants her heart lifted up wouldn't be so bad, but you multiply her 250,000 times, and what you get is a book club. I used to think it should be possible to write for some supposed elite, for the people who attend the universities and sometimes know how to read. But I have since found that though you may publish your stories in Bottega Oscuri, if they are any good at all, you are eventually going to get a letter from some old lady in California or some inmate of the federal penitentiary or the state insane asylum or the local poorhouse telling you where you have failed to meet his needs. And his need, of course, is to be lifted up. There is something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what follows at least be offered the chance to be restored.
The reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so. But what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is deluded or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. When he reads a novel, he wants either his senses tormented or his spirits raised. He wants to be transported instantly, either to a mock damnation or a mock innocence. I am often told that the model of balance for the novelist should be Dante, who divided his territory up pretty evenly between hell, purgatory, and paradise. There can be no objection to this, but also there can be no reason to assume that the result of doing it in these times will give us the balanced picture that it gave in Dante's. Dante lived in the 13th century when that balance was achieved in the faith of his age. We live now in an age which doubts both fact and value, which is swept this way and that by momentary convictions. Instead of reflecting a balance from the world around him, the novelist now has to achieve one from a felt balance inside himself. There are ages when it is possible to woo the reader. There are others when something more drastic is necessary. There is no literary orthodoxy that can be prescribed as settled for the fiction writer, not even that of Henry James, who balanced the elements of traditional realism and romance so admirably within each of his novels. But this much can be said. The great novels we get in the future are not going to be those that the public thinks it wants, or that critics demand. They're going to be the kind of novels that interest the novelist. And the novels that interest the novelist are those that have not already been written. They are those that put the greatest demands on him, that require him to operate at the maximum of his intelligence and his talents, and to be true to the particularities of his own vocation. The direction of many of us will be toward concentration and the distortion that is necessary to get our vision across. It will be toward poetry rather than toward the traditional novel. The problem of such a novelist will be to know how far he can start without destroying. And in order not to destroy, he will have to descend far enough into himself to reach those underground springs that will give life to his work. This descent into himself will at the same time be a descent into his region. It will be a descent through the darkness of the familiar into a world where like the blind man cured in the Gospels, he sees men as if they were trees but walking. This is the beginning of vision, and I think it is the beginning which we in the South must at least try to understand if we want to participate in the continuance of a vital Southern literature. I hate to think that in 20 years, Southern writers too 
may be writing about men in gray flannel suits and may have lost their ability to see that these gentlemen are even greater freaks than what we are writing about now. I hate to think of the day when the southern writer will satisfy the tired reader. When that day comes, the Dorothy Blunt Lamar lectures will have to be concerned exclusively with the literature of the past. 